2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. Breaking overnight, a state of emergency is called in a Texas border city as officials brace for the end of a COVID era rule allowing the expulsion of migrants. We'll have the latest. Border cities are overwhelmed once again by migrants seeking asylum in anticipation of the lifting of Title 42 on Wednesday. Processing centers are inundated and the streets of El Paso are filled with migrants forced to wait in freezing temperatures. We'll talk with two House members from Texas, Republican Tony Gonzalez, And Democrat, Henry Cuellar, about the challenges facing local, state, and federal officials. Here in Washington, Congress is facing deadlines on a number of fronts, including funding the government and finishing up the January 6th committee investigation before the holidays. We'll speak exclusively to West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Plus, we'll talk to the White House Senior Advisor for Public Engagement, Keisha Lance-Bottoms. Finally, with more than three quarters of the nation's hospital beds at capacity, we'll check in with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, about the viral trifecta of RSV, flu and COVID that's crippling the country. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. As the country wraps up year end business and prepares for the holidays, there is once again a crisis at the U.S. Mexico border. Typically, the influx of migrants seeking a better life in the U.S. comes during the warmer weather. But a pandemic era rule that allows migrants to be expelled on public health grounds is set to end Wednesday. That rule is called Title 42. That's putting added pressure on border cities like El Paso, Texas and Yuma, Arizona, where states of emergency have been issued, as well as in cities like Denver and New York, where border state governors have been sending those migrants. And we begin with West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. He is in Charleston. Good morning to you, Senator.
3: Good morning, Margaret. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. I'm glad you could join us. You wrote this letter to President Biden this week uh, saying yes. there would be a complete loss of operational control at the southern border once Title 42 ends in about three days. So what more can the administration be doing and what can Congress deliver in the coming days?
3: Well, let me just say the border is we have a crisis of the border. Everyone can see that. I think everyone realizes that something has to be done. Uh, it, 42 needs to be extended until we can get a really truly immigration reform. Immigration reform will no, not happen in our country until we all come, both sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans and the administration, that you have to have total border security. security but the courts ordered the 42 game, to be and struck then down. You can have, I understand that the president needs to use every bit of power he has as an executive to find a way or ask for an extension. The president can basically, I think, ask for that extension. I think his administration is doing that or will do that. I sure hope they do, but we need an extension until we can get a viable answer for this. Right now, this is unattainable. This is wrong. You can't do this to the southern border. John Cornyn, my friend, uh, senator from Texas, they're on the front lines. They're the largest border we have, uh, state that borders uh, Mexico, and it just, it's unattainable.
2: But what can Congress deliver in terms of emergency funding? Because as we understand it, unless the Supreme Court steps in, Title 42 is going away.
3: Yeah, well, again, the executive board, we could pass a piece of legislation, an emergency piece of legislation, if we could all come to an agreement that basically Title 42 has to be by law extended and have the president sign immediately. I guess that could be done. We're going back in Monday. And uh, it's just it's a crisis when you have a crisis, it seems like we can manage under a crisis in a bipartisan way. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that we've come to this gridlock.
2: You said recently that you have a worker shortage in West Virginia right now. Um, how do you yeah. get to bipartisan legislation on legal migration when you are uh, about to face a Republican-controlled House that's vowed to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, that's, it's, it's, it's an unfair charge against Ali Malarca's I think the gentleman is, is, is very competent. He can do a good job. They just need to unleash him, let him do his job. That's what I have said before, and I'll say it again now. Uh, with that, uh, we have got to do, uh, basically, immigration reform. My, my state of West Virginia needs more workers. We need people that want to come here for the right reason, uh, to provide for their family a better quality of life. My grandparents, great-grandparents, brought my grandparents here in 1900 on both sides of the aisle, from Italy and Czechoslovakia for that opportunity. I'm I'm a product of that. And we have so many people that want to come to our country. There has to be a legal pathway forward. That's all we've been talking about. The 2013 piece of legislation that we worked on and passed in a bipartisan way in the Senate never got a vote in the House. Use that as the building block. That was a piece of legislation that was responsible and reasonable and it basically all centered around border security. But it gave a legal pathway forward to come into this country, work your way to legal citizenship. That's what we need.
2: Well, we will see in the new Congress if that becomes possible. Um, You uh, on the energy security front have also been raising concerns. You were the critical vote that helped the president get his green energy plan passed as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the IRA. That really ticked off Republicans, as you know. But you also said you had a a second deal with Democratic leaders endorsed by the president to back up a bill to speed up permits for natural gas pipelines and other energy projects. Why did this collapse?
3: Well, Margaret, first of all, there was no second deal. It was all one deal. It was basically how do we have energy security? First of all, the IRA is a historic bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so isn't the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill which has about $100 billion of energy uh, concerns in that that me and my staff and the energy committee worked on. We wrote the bill, basically the IRA portion of that bill as far as the energy. But you know, when you talk about uh, inflation reduction, it brings down drug prices. It brings down basically insulin prices, life-saving insulin. It brings down healthcare costs. It does all those things. But on top of that, we need more energy in the market. I know it's been touted as a green deal or this. That's the farthest thing from the truth. It is a bipartisan energy security. You cannot be the superpower of the world if you don't have energy independence. And energy independence means energy security and national security. That piece of legislation that we wrote and worked on basically takes a double path. Ten years certainty that we're going to have fossil fuel, the horsepower that runs our country, the cleanest in the world. We don't have to go to Iran, the most prolific terrorist supporters in the world. We don't have to go to Venezuela, who has very little oversight on Mm -hmm. the environment. We can produce the fossil in this country to be totally independent and help our allies with the cleanest fossil in the world. And while at the same time we're investing records amounts, investments, we're not spending and throwing money at it, we're investing it to bring the new technology for the future of the world. That's what that bill did. That's a very important piece of legislation. Right, but you were trying to get permitting
2: for drilling and and projects sped up with this other bill. Um, And and 10 Democrats voted against the permitting bill. Only seven Senate Republicans did vote with you. Have you talked to the president about trying to revive it?
3: It has to be passed sooner or later. Everyone knows that. They keep saying, "Well, we'll get a better deal when the House goes Republican. I say to my Republican friends and colleagues, You've had the entire gambit from 2016 to 2020 when you had the president being Republican, the House and the Senate, you tried permitting, you had one Democrat, me, I'm the only Democrat that voted for major permitting reforms. So we know the lay of the land, Mitch McConnell knows basically the structure and how the legislature works and how the Senate works better uh, than most. With that being said, we had a perfect situation here, 40 Democrats voted for permitting reform which they had not supported before. And f- there was a, a majority. Only only seven Republicans voted mm-hmm. for something that all fifty had supported before. So you tell me, if it's about policy, is it about politics? Something's wrong, and this is why people are so upset with what they see going on in Washington. Permitting reform basically with what we did with the Inflation Reduction mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, Margaret. Mm-hmm. If that all doesn't come to fruition, unless you're able to do things. We're the only civilized country in the world that takes two and three times longer than anybody else. And if we don't do something on permitting reform, then the pipelines that we need to carry the energy that we demand Mm -hmm. and also the transmission that will help carry the new technologies of the future won't be done in time and that money will be stranded. That's what we're dealing with.
2: Well, we'll see in the new Congress if you can get that done. I mean, you were pretty fired up after this failed. You said, I serve with an independent voice, not a political party. What is clearer now than ever is party politics are paralyzing our ability to unite. You talked about toxic tribal politics. Um, Why are you staying a member uh, of this tribe if it's so toxic?
3: Well, uh, here's the thing uh, about it. You know, I I really don't put much, much... uh, now validity in in, uh, the identity of being a Republican Democrat I think we're all Americans you know I used to I grew up in in an age when if you're a Republican or a Democrat we all acknowledge that we had a problem we all had different ideas of how to how how to solve the problem but we were all trying to solve the same problem Mm -hmm. it has it has basically basically transitioned itself to now to where how can we blame somebody else how can we create a problem and blame somebody for it that makes them unpopular that's not what I signed up for that's not what I sign up for. And I speak out. I speak out against the Democrat Party and against the Republican Party when it's wrong.
2: I know you and do. basically,
3: people are sick and tired of it.
2: Uh, well, you said recently you consider yourself strictly an independent. Do you see an advantage in this environment to becoming unaffiliated, to becoming an independent?
3: Well, let's see how basically these two pieces of legislation, which are really historic, is the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, Let's see how that plays out. If people are trying to stop something from doing so much good because of the politics, thinking that somebody else will get credit for it, let's see how that plays out. And I'll let you know later what I decide to do. But right now, I have no intentions of changing anything except working for West Virginians, trying to give them more opportunities, better quality of life, and basically making sure our country is energy secured. That means national security will be the superpower of the world. I'm not going to be relying on other parts of the world or other countries to delivering energy for what we need for our economy and our defense of our country.
2: That sounds a little bit like a warning to Democratic leaders that you're considering something in the future there. Um, uh, uh, it, you, you said, let's see. I think if,
3: Margaret, let me just say, if, if I can say this to you. Yeah. They know how independent I am. The deed does not saddle me to everything the Democrats yeah. want to do is what's right. I don't think the Democrats have all the answers. I don't think the Republicans are always wrong and vice versa mm-hmm. i don't look at things that way where i come from is basically how do i survive and make it better and a quality of life that we can extend to more people that's it and if republicans have a good idea and i like it i'm with it and if i'm the only democrat which i've been many times yep. i feel very comfortable i can come home and explain it on mm-hmm. the other hand you got to speak truth to power but when the democrats are doing something and on this one right now yeah. with the inflation reduction act uh, it's a shame it went through only reconciliation. That was a bipartisan yeah. bill. You can walk and chew gum, provide more fossil energy cleaner, provide more in, in, uh, investments into the cleaner technologies. That's, that's what's coming, and that's what we have to embrace.
2: Senator, thank you for your time this morning, and I, ha- I hope you have a good holiday. Thank you. We go now to Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, whose district covers more than 800 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border in West Texas. Good morning to you, Congressman.
4: Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me on. Uh,
2: You you heard the the senator there calling for reform. um, But uh, as you know, unless Supreme Court steps in here, Title 42 is going away. Um, What has the federal government told you is coming to your community in the coming days?
4: Yeah, it is a dire situation in El Paso. As you know, the city declared a state of emergency. This is something you do when there's a hurricane, a fire, an earthquake. What is happening is it's a hurricane of migrants, and everyone is impacted. Yeah, I represent 823 miles of the southern border. I've seen this exact play play out uh, a year ago in Del Rio is what's happening in El Paso. Now, you know, I was just in El Paso uh, a, a few days ago, mm-hmm. and what I saw at the migrant center I had never seen before. I Visited, I had visited the processing center there many times, and what I saw were hundreds, over 500 migrants in a in a uh, pod. They call them pods, essentially a large cell that holds about 100 people. There's one bathroom, the odor's terrible, and, and there's eight pods in there. And, and so th- those are the good conditions. Outside, just above the hill, there's a thousand, uh, a little over a thousand migrants waiting in outdoor conditions. Not to mm-hmm. mention the people that are waiting by the by the uh, by the bridge elsewhere. It's a very dire situation in El Paso. Uh,
2: I just want to say to our viewers who are just looking there at video that you provided to CBS that I believe you shot inside those facilities. And we are relying on that cell phone video in part because CBS News and other media organizations have not been permitted to film recently inside those facilities. Why do you think it is important for the public to see what's happening inside?
4: Yeah, Margaret, I visited there for a few reasons to know the ground truth and to be able to share the ground truth. Also, to to let the uh, the Border Patrol agents that are under incredible amounts of stress know that they're not forgotten. And what I saw shocked me, and I wanted to share that with the world. It's not about politics. It's not about, you know, trying to uh, uh, create this this image that isn't there. This is the reality. This is the facts. We're not even at the worst of it yet. Hundreds of people stuck in a in a, in a small area is not good for everyone. What yeah. I also saw was people without socks and jackets. It's it's going to be you know in the teens later this week. So it's it's a very sad situation all the way around. What I also say to enough with the the, the finger pointing. I don't care how we got here. How do we get out of here? And there's some things that the administration can immediately do like to what? alleviate this stress. Yeah. Uh, look, the, the Biden. This isn't the the, the first time uh, an administration has had a crisis. Every presidency. O, uh, President Obama. Trump. Sure. This is uh, a hemispheric.
2: Bush, when, surge of migrants, though. This is a hemispheric crisis.
4: That's true. We've never seen it like this, though. So what are some of the things that the administration can do? Title 42 is gone. We have pushed and pushed and pushed. We're, we're three days away from that being gone. What are some of the things that the administration can do? They can reimplement a couple of programs that made sense. PACER and the HARP program. That's essentially having immigration judges at the border, meaning you get your asylum case heard in days, not years. And if you do not qualify for asylum, you get returned back to your country of origin via repatriation flights. You turn that process back on, but there's some enforcement and all of a sudden the stress gets down. I worry if that doesn't happen, we may be shutting bridges down. The the city of El Paso produces $138 billion mm-hmm. worth of trade. You shut down one day of, of that trade and commerce, that's $60 million. It'll impact everybody, not just those that live along the border.
2: So uh, the Biden administration is asking Congress for $3.4 billion to prepare for this, this surge. Um Do you think this will happen? Would you vote for it?
4: I think it's needed. I think it's absolutely needed, but throwing money at a problem does not solve a problem. You can have an unlimited amount of soft-sided facilities. The problem is enforcing the laws that are already on the books. I'd also argue the bulk of people that are coming over are just trying to live a better life. I get that. They're coming here for economic opportunities, but that doesn't qualify for asylum. Going back to immigration reform, I would love to have a conversation with the administration to work through something. Work visas make yeah. sense to me. Pathway to citizenship, amnesty—that is dead on arrival. What people have tried before have, has no chance of, of working. You got to start and build out from there. Okay. I hosted the pres—I hosted the president in Uvalde, and and uh, you know six months ago, and I asked him, Mr. President, I'd love to visit with you about the border. He agreed to it, but yet I've I've, I've yet to have that conversation with him.
2: Well, I, you're you're putting your finger on the need to get bipartisan legislation done, but. I got to be honest with you, a lot of your fellow Republicans are not talking that way. Um, In fact, there's there's calls, as you know, to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, We had Michael Chertoff on this program, the Bush era Homeland Security Secretary recently, a Republican who said this was a political stunt, a waste, a performance on impeachment, never going anywhere. How do you defend your party prioritizing impeachment when you're saying it is dire crisis in need of substantive legislation?
4: We certainly have to secure the border. It's very difficult to have the conversation on immigration reform when when the border is not secure. But I also say I've hosted nearly 100 members of Congress these past two years. I asked you about and impeachment. Durin, in, impeaching Mayorkas or our, our yes. president or else? Yes. What Republican yeah, that, that leadership
2: is, is talking about prioritizing?
4: Yeah, I think that's going to—hearings are going to absolutely take place. And where that leads us, who knows. But I take impeachment extremely serious. That is a case of emergency break glass. But impeachment, that's a long process. The city of El Paso needs help today, not a year from now.
2: All right. Congressman, um, good luck to you and your community. In the coming days, we'll be tracking everything. Thank you, Margaret. Congressman Gonzalez, Face the Nation will be back. Stay with us. We now want to go to Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, whose district covers about 200 miles of the U.S. Mexico border, including the city of Laredo. Good morning to you, Congressman.
5: Good morning to you, Margaret.
2: There are 8,000 border crossings per day. That number could double, according to estimates, as soon as this week. You represent a lot of Border Patrol agents. Um, are they prepared? How is morale?
5: Well, first of all, morale is not good because they feel that the administration doesn't have their backs, number one. Number two, are they prepared? No. Even the $3 billion that you mentioned a while ago, that money is going to be used for processing. It's going to be used for food and shelter and transportation the migrants. It doesn't uh, address the issue that we're facing at the border. You know, there's uh, thousands of people are coming in, but you got to look at one thing. In the last two years, we had over 35,000 rescues, Border Patrol saving people that could have died. We also had 1,400 uh, people that died, including children. Now, is this the most humane way that we are to address uh, asylum? No. I think what we need to do is have a pathway where they go through the bridges in an early uh, way. And then, and then, Margaret, if they don't follow that pathway, I think we need to send them back and say, follow the way. Mm -hmm. I'll finish with this analogy quickly. It's like if somebody invites me to go to their house uh, for lunch, but I decide to go through the back door. I decide to come through windows. I decide to bring a whole bunch of people. I decide what hours I come in. It doesn't work that way. We as a country need to set the asylum Right. Procedures in place.
2: Well, as you know, it's extra complicated with Venezuelans and Haitians and Cubans and people who are coming that can't be sent back to their countries of origin. How do you solve for that?
5: Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, uh, th- those three countries, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, those are countries that are a little bit more complicated. But, you know, the top 15 countries include Colombia, uh, Mexico, and includes also Peru Ecuador and in the top 15 you also have Russia India uh, uh, Georgia the state also and Turkey also so in the top 15 you know people are, are understanding across the world that the back of the southern border is open
2: one story we've been following closely is almost at an end the congressional investigation into the January 6th attacks. The committee will release their final report this week, and then thousands of pages of interviews and documents will be released to the public soon after. CBS News will cover that final meeting Monday at 1 p.m. on our broadcast and streaming networks as the committee votes on whether to make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice for some of the people they've investigated, including former President Trump. And this programming note, be sure to tune in tomorrow to CBS Mornings for their exclusive interview with newly reelected Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. As for us, we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
0: When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Have you
1: heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free?
2: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to continue our conversation now with Congressman Henry Cuellar. Congressman, uh, in a letter to the president this week, you warned that this week, when Title 42 lifts, they'll have a complete loss of operational control over the southern border. Um, And that's going to have a profoundly negative impact on border communities. You know, the White House is saying that they've got a plan here. Why are you saying they don't? What is it that you are hearing?
5: You know, they've been talking about this plan for the last two years. They've been playing. They've been playing, uh, blaming the Republicans they have been blaming uh, Congress. How long is this plan going to be uh, uh take? Uh, when will it take in effect? I've seen that plan without due respect. A lot of it deals with Processing, moving migrants from the border over to the interior. We need to have a way that we can have a policy where if Title 42 goes away, it looks like it's going to go away unless if the Supreme Court steps in. If it goes away, they have to have a policy of a early pathway to asylum through our bridges. And if they don't follow that pathway, they need to go back. You know, they got to have something in place. I've looked, with all due respect, I've looked at that Plan. And I I don't think uh, it's, you know, they've been talking about it and it hasn't worked. Now they're asking for the $3 billion or or so. It's mainly for food and shelters, processing, uh, transportation, but it doesn't really talk about security.
2: So you also pledge in this letter to work on bipartisan legislation. That's not going to get done in the next few days. What is it that you're envisioning in the new Congress that is going to be possible with a Republican-controlled House?
5: Yeah, it, I mean, definitely uh, the, the only thing we can do is add more money. Uh, I don't know if it will be the $3 billion, but it will be monies there to uh, meet the president's request or as much as possible, number one. Next year, I mean, it's going to be a show in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, impeaching the secretary doesn't move us one inch closer to solving the issues. Uh, and I hope that we can uh, have the president. The president can do this, can implement a policy of a early process for pa- uh, for asylum at the bridges. And if not, they go back. They got to have a consequence. The president can do that because, look, keep in mind, through executive order, yeah, well, well look, look at it. I mean, President Obama didn't have immigration reform, didn't have all the things that people have been asking for, but he was able to manage the border in a much better place, uh, a way. So the president, President Biden can do this. But without due respect, I think his advisors are doing a disservice to him.
2: I'm sure the White House would say it's it's a hemispheric surge. It's worse than it's ever been. I want to get to something you've been raising consistently is you've been faulting President Biden for failing to visit the border. Um, Policy experts would say, you know, photo op doesn't do much to you. What does going to the border actually achieve? And do you think it's uh, the reason he hasn't gone is because the White House is afraid it's going to backfire that the border agents you're talking about will be disrespectful to him?
5: Well, look, there's different ways of visiting the border. He doesn't have to uh, go there for just a photo op. But, you know, a leader has to show uh, images of, of being up there in the front. He, he can do that. It, it, he can do it in, in so many ways. And I'm not asking for a photo op, but I think the message that will go uh, to not only the men and women in green and blue, but to the border communities, I'm more interested in the border communities, will say, hey, look, I'm the president of the United States. I'm here at the border border communities. I feel your pain.
2: Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Congressman, we will be watching what happens in the coming days. Good luck to you and your community. We go now to Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is a senior advisor to President Biden for public engagement. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, uh, immigration is uh, top of mind here. Um you just heard from uh, two Democrats who have been sharply critical of the administration not doing more uh, in the face of this expiration of title forty two. What is the administration doing to urge migrants not to come?
6: Well, the administration has been working for months planning for the end of title forty two. And you have to remember, Margaret, These aren't people who are attempting to illegally cross the border. These are people who are presenting themselves, asking that they be processed in accordance uh, with the laws of the United States. Mm -hmm. So people have to remember Title 42 is a public health emergency order. If Title 42 goes away, we will then go back to Title 8, which allows for a process, which is the reason why the administration has asked Congress to fund more than $3 billion to help us provide the resources that will be needed to process these migrants, to make sure that people are treated humanely, to make sure that the bordering communities have the resources that they need. Um, And we need Congress to be a partner in this and we need Congress to act uh, because this is a a global Mm -hmm. issue that we are facing. Um, and the White House alone can't do it. We need support from Congress.
2: So, I mean, you make an important point that it, it is a right to be able to ask for asylum. What happens when Title 42 goes away is that people can't be expelled Um, what it allowed for was expelling without the guarantee of an asylum hearing. So this means that people will be allowed to stay until they get their day in court. So this will mean more people coming into the United States. They may be in a process that could last years, frankly. And so that's why I come back to that fundamental uh, question of what is the White House doing to say, don't come to the border and try to claim asylum.
6: Well, what the White House has done has said very publicly that we want people to avail themselves of a lawful process. What we are seeing happening is that many people are taking advantage of the fact that Title 42 may go away this week. Uh, We see many people exploiting migrants saying, come now or you lose your ability to come at all. And that's simply not the case. But again this is not just an issue that we are facing in the United States this is a global issue so the president has been working very closely with our partners across the globe to address this global issue but we also need partnership at home we need partnership um, from from Congress and we Mm -hmm. need to focus on what this decades-old issue is and that issue is making sure that we have comprehensive immigration reform not focusing on trying to impeach Uh, the Homeland Security Secretary. You think about impeachment. Impeachment is for misdemeanors, high crimes and misdemeanors, bribery, treason. This is a difference in policy approach, not the best use of our resources, certainly not the best use of um, of the time that Congress has to work with the White House to address this issue.
2: Okay. So we're about to face that Republican-controlled House. Um, It looks like gridlock. So that doesn't really get you to a place for bipartisan uh, reform. If we are only left with executive actions, what can President Biden do?
6: Well, Margaret, I want to remind you that in the first two years in office, President Biden has signed over 200 bipartisan bills. So he's not giving up on working in a bipartisan manner to address immigration, an issue that we should all be concerned about. Um, What we need is funding from Congress, and we need to continue to work toward comprehensive immigration reform. So the president has said he wants to get things done in a bipartisan manner. The American people have said they want us to work together in a bipartisan manner. We need everyone at the table with ideas. Remember, Republicans Mm -hmm. will control the House. So the the need uh, for Republicans in Congress to say what they won't do has now been removed. Now tell us what you will do to work with the president to make sure that we have comprehensive immigration reform. But in the immediate future, we need funding for the resources that will make sure uh, that we can address the immediate needs on the ground.
2: Are Democratic leaders telling you you will get the 3.4 billion?
6: Well, we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep pushing. So it's our hope. We're working daily around the clock. Uh, with members of Congress to make sure that funding is in place because those resources are needed. And this is, again, not just a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. This is an issue that impacts us all, even those of us uh, who don't live in states that are uh, that are on the border. You heard Senator Manchin talk about the needs in West Virginia and how immigration reform is needed in West Virginia to help with the economy in West Virginia. So we're going to keep working around the clock. And simply because people don't see the president at the border doesn't mean that he's not working.
2: Right. Well, why doesn't he go to the border? He was just in Arizona. Why wasn't it worth his time?
6: Well, you have to remember, Margaret, when the president travels, it's not like you or I jumping on an airplane and getting off and going to our destination. Everything comes to a halt. So all of these things are in consideration for the president. Is that the best use of resources? All of the resources that will be diverted on the ground when the president makes a visit. Is that why but he didn't is go? is that visit... Uh, well, I can't speak to why he has or has not gone. I'm just speaking to the fact that it's a bit more disruptive for the president of the United States to travel than you or I. But what the president has done is continue to lean in on this immigration issue. It's something uh, that he ran on. And what we know over the past two years, every single thing that the president has run on, he's put time and resources into addressing it. So immigration, we know, is a problem that he did not create. Mm -hmm. Um, Our issues with immigration are decades-long issues, and he will continue to lean in through the White House and through Congress to get comprehensive immigration reform done.
2: All right. We'll be watching for that. Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you for your time today.
1: We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
2: Despite some hopeful new economic indicators, consumers are watching their spending this holiday season. Mark Strassman has more from Atlanta. Yeah.
7: Tis the season to be jittery, with an economy offering both the spirit of Santa and the specter of Scrooge. Here's a gift. Inflation is coming down in America. Down for the fifth straight month from its June peak. Gas prices dropped more than 50 cents over the last month, averaging 3.15 a gallon, a steal compared to mid-June, when typical gas prices began with a number five. Inflation's easing, but it's become a siege, still above 7%, still near a 40-year high. The U.S. economy has slowed significantly from last year's rapid pace. No surprise, the Fed this week raised interest rates again, this time by half a percentage point. Without price stability, the economy doesn't work for anyone. The Fed's seventh rate hike this year stokes another worry. It's clear that the Fed is not done. They're going to continue to raise interest rates, more likely than not push us into recession. Recession pessimism fuels the Scrooge in this holiday economy, along with a bear stock market, a housing slump, a drop in manufacturing output. November's retail sales were the biggest decline this year. Worrisome to retailers, shoppers spent less in holiday categories, electronics, clothing, toys.
1: I am definitely doing couponing, um, Amazon deals, um, shopping local, and then obviously like making my own stuff.
7: The holiday shopping season is the time of year when retailers need consumers to feel jolly. But for millions of shoppers, this year's goal Find gifts that fit under the tree and into their budget.
2: Margaret? Mark Strassman, thank you. Another thing Americans are watching closely, that surge of viruses inundating us this holiday season. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is a former FDA commissioner and a Pfizer board member, and we welcome you back, Dr. Gottlieb. Thanks a lot. The White House says this is the worst flu outbreak in a decade. RSV, COVID, they're surging. 77% of ICU beds in the country are currently full. How dangerous are these next few weeks?
8: It's going to be a difficult uh, few weeks. We're right in the thick of uh, respiratory pathogen season. That's the worst in recent memory. Um, It's being driven largely by flu. Uh, This is a historic year for flu, Uh, probably the worst in the last decade, as you mentioned. COVID is exacerbating that. We also have an epidemic of respiratory syncytial virus, which seems to be abating right now. Flu also seems to be peaking in certain parts of the country. It's rising in other parts of the country. It's decreasing in the south, rising in the north. And COVID is contributing to that. Um, It's pressing families. It's also pressing hospitals. As you mentioned, 80 percent of hospital beds right now are full. The hospitals haven't been this full since the peak of the Omicron wave last winter. The difference is that last winter, 25 percent of those hospital beds were filled with covid admissions. Right now, only six percent are filled with covid admissions. So a lot of them are influenza admissions and other respiratory pathogens like adenovirus, parainfluenza, all the things that plague us each winter are coming back with a vengeance.
2: A lot of bugs. But if, if the flu vaccine is such a good me- match, as you've said before, to this current strain, why are so many Americans getting sick?
8: Well, a lot of people aren't getting the vaccine, first of all, and we know the vaccine isn't 100% protective against infection. What the vaccine does in the setting of flu is reduce your chances of having a symptomatic infection and reduce your chances of having a severe outcome, similar to how we're using it Um, with COVID. The predominant strain of flu right now that's circulating is H3N2. The vaccine, as you said, is a very good match for that strain, maybe 60 to 70 percent protective. The other strain that's circulating is H1N1. About 20 percent of infections are H1N1. The vaccine is also a good match for that strain. And the difference between those two strains is that H3N2 typically peaks earlier in the winter. H1N1 may peak later. So it's not too late for people to get their flu vaccine. If people go out and get it now, they're going to have some immediate protection from it. And we could see a situation, as we've seen in other winters, where the predominant strain H3N2 starts to decline, and then H1N1 infection picks up.
2: Well, the other thing, particularly annoying parents of young kids like me, is the shortage of antibiotics. Why don't we have enough supply?
8: It's really demand-driven. So distributors made estimates on how much demand there would be this year. They've had lower demand in the past two years because there was less um, bacterial infections because we were all taking certain steps to prevent the spread of disease. Demand went up this year. They anticipated some increase in demand, but not as much as we're seeing and not this early in the season. So it's not any kind of disruption in supply. This isn't like what we had with baby formula where manufacturers have been taken out of the market. This is a sophisticated supply chain. All the manufacturers are in the market. They just didn't anticipate this much demand this early in the season. Um, Supply should catch up with demand. And there are alternatives for the things that are in shortage, like amoxicillin, um, the oral suspension of Tamiflu is also in shortage. Doctors and pharmacies can compound that from the capsule. So there are alternatives. It's just going to be difficult in some instances for families to get their hands on those alternatives.
2: Yes. Um, You know, I know I know you're saying things are better versus where we were on the COVID front. But Dr. Fauci was on this program a few weeks ago, um, and he said he was tracking new COVID variants that evade the protection of monoclonal antibodies that are used for treatment and prevention. I know there's been studies on that that also say the same thing about the vaccine. What level of protection is there against these new variants?
8: Well, there was data out from the CDC on Friday that showed that the vaccine's providing good protection, particularly in the older individuals, the new vaccine, this this, uh, new bivalent booster based on the new strain. So it's based on BA5. What we're seeing right now is 40 percent of infections are BQ1.1 which is a derivative of BA5, the strain that the vaccine's based on, about 30% of infections are BQ1. There still should be good protection from the vaccine against those new variants. The one we're more worried about is a variant called XBB. So far, that's not spreading in the U.S. that much. It's about 5% of infections. It's held steady for about four weeks right now. That strain spread a lot in Asia. It didn't spread a lot in Europe. So it could be the case that BQ1 and 1.1 – crowd out XBB. But the concern is that if XBB continues to persist, you could see a second wave this spring. We don't think that's going to happen, but it's a possibility. But people are still going to get good protection from the existing vaccines, the updated vaccine, against the strains that are circulating right now. So the study that came out from CDC showed about 70 to 80 percent protection from hospitalization from those over the age of 65. On top of the protection that they got from the old vaccine. So that's quite meaningful for a lot of individuals.
2: I want to ask you about Title 42 Um, in March of 2020. That was when the CDC director put this in place. It's a public health law um, to expel migrants in order to stop the spread of disease. That was the premise. Is there any public health reason to keep it in place now?
8: Well, look, I think as a matter of public health, we should be expiring a lot of these emergency measures that we put in place, not just Title 42, but also the um, national emergency that we put in place. I think what's happening is a lot of these are being extended to serve other policy and political goals. Um, That's ultimately going to undermine our ability to implement these public health measures in, in the future. If we need to have expedited removal... Of people crossing the border illegally, I think that should be contemplated in the context of broader immigration reform and as a matter of law enforcement, but not as a public health measure at this point. I think all of these public health emergency measures that we put in place should be expired.
2: Dr. Gottlieb, thank you so much, and I hope you stay healthy this holiday season. (laughs) Thanks a lot. We'll be right back. Finally today, we are coming up on day 300 of the war in Ukraine. Our MTS Tayyip reports from this country where the cold winter is being weaponized by the Russians against the weary yet resilient population.
9: In liberated Kherson, life is desperate. Russian attacks on the energy grid have left the city without fuel and power. And one of the few ways to get a hot meal now is to cook over an open fire in the street. Nine months of Russian occupation has obliterated any semblance of a normal life for people here. But what Ukrainians have shown time and again is that they'll do anything to help each other. Including at Kherson's main university, where desperately needed aid has been brought in by these professors from Kiev who hadn't been able to contact their colleagues here for months because Russian forces controlled their lives so tightly. Remnants of Russians' occupation have been swept into this room. You can see flags, photos of Vladimir Putin. And while Russian forces are gone, make no mistake, they're still targeting this city. At an elementary school in the Kyiv suburb of Bucha, which is still haunted by the atrocities committed by Russia here, Life is slowly returning to normal, but regular power cuts means it's cold and dark until the generator kicks in, bringing with it warmth and light, something in short supply at home, says eight-year-old Donna. There's no electricity.
1: Mm -hmm.
9: It must be really hard. (laughs) It's very hard, she says. Our house is freezing. On one of the school's walls is now a memorial to Katya, Matvi and Vanya who were all killed in the early weeks of Russia's invasion, says acting principal Irina Vaschenko. Every morning we have a moment of silence, she says, because we must never forget them. At a small ceremony in one of Bucha's cemeteries, a memorial service for fallen soldiers, including Natalia's brother and husband, who are both buried here. How are you feeling? I feel pain, she says. I am trying to come to terms with things, but I can't. A feeling felt by so many across this war-scarred country. Imtiaz Taib, CBS News, Bucha, Ukraine.
2: Today's guests were West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Texas Congressman Republican Tony Gonzalez and Democrat Henry Cuellar and White House Senior Advisor Keisha Lance Bottoms. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Mesa Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
1: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast and your emotions and I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding just send us an email at ask Jill at Jill dot follow money watch wherever you get your podcasts you can listen ad free on the Amazon music or Wondery app